spend our time. At this time, uh, the children who are practicing for the play can head downstairs. Uh, they're going to take one more run through and uh, looking forward again to seeing that tonight. And uh, as, as uh, we start things off, I, I just want to say thank you to the choir for the work that they put into uh, those songs. Uh, thank you to Dave and uh, Gina as they kind of headed that whole thing up and Nicole uh, picked the music. So just thank you uh, to all of that. And certainly those songs uh, have a great message as we think about the Christ of Christmas and him uh, becoming flesh so that he could die in our place. Today, uh, as we wrap up our series, Christmas in the Gospels, we're going to be looking at the hope of Christmas found in John 1. And I, I do pray, uh, last week as we talked through Luke um, 2, and we, we talked a lot about Mary pondering and, and the shepherds worshiping, I do pray that this week you spent some time pondering the Christmas story and all that it means, uh, all that it meant back then, but all that it means still today. And as we carry those thoughts into John 1, I pray that that God would bring things full circle, that we would see the promise of the lineage that was given to us in Matthew 1 and how God brought all those things together. And then in Mark, we saw John the Baptist come on the scene and we saw that he was the one who was to go before Christ, to make known this idea that a Savior was coming into the world. And last week, we saw the Savior come on the scene and today we're going to be in John's Gospel and see his take on the Christmas story. And before uh, we, we begin this morning, I'd like to have a word of prayer. And just ask God's blessing upon his word. And I, I pray that as I pray, uh, you would also pray. That our prayer would not be that we, we sit through a quick Christmas sermon, right? But that we would pray that, that God would speak to our hearts. Um, anybody's life a little bit hectic this time of year? We talked about that last week. Everyone's life is. And so I pray right now that the Spirit of God would calm our hearts and minds and that we would receive the truth that he has for us, and that we would desire for him to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. God, we're grateful this morning to again be in your house. We're grateful for the songs that we've sung, God, joy to the world. And as we look at the question, what child is this? God, we understand that it was Christ the Lord. God, as we heard the choir sing a few songs that pointed us in this direction of the incarnation of Christ, I pray that today that you would prepare our hearts to receive these truths and that they would be life-changing even now. God, again, I pray if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, that today would, would be the day that their eyes are open and their hearts are ready to receive the word of God that changes lives. And God, for those of us who are saved, I pray that we would be in awe once again <laughs> the way that you brought about salvation for us in sending your Son not as a full-grown man who came to conquer, but as a baby who needed nurture and love and care. And as he grew, God, we understand that he lived as we live, only he lived without sin. And that is why he can be the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. God, speak to us as you desire today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If we were to remove the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, Mary and Joseph, the manger, the star, and the decree for taxation from the Christmas story, what would we then be left with? Well, we'd be left with John 1. And while John does not labor the details of the Christmas story as we see Luke and Matthew do, we understand that in this text, John labors the idea of the central theme of the Christmas story, which is Jesus, God made flesh, and coming to dwell among us. You see, John gives us the backstory on the Christmas story. 
He doesn't spend time on the earthly details that we find so endearing, but rather he spends time on the eternal details which give the Christmas story its power. If the other details of the story were removed that I listed, we would still have Christ. But if Christ is removed and all we're left with is the other details, then we are left hopeless. And so John in his gospel reveals to us the person of Christ in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in his radiance, in his majesty, and in his eternality. And while he highlights these truths, we see that he also drills into this idea of why Jesus came. And we know that this reason that he came was to bring hope to a world that is in such desperate need of hope. The big idea this morning is this, Christ is the center of the Christmas story. And he deserves to be the center of your life. John outlines the person of Christ. And as his person, or in his person, we see why he alone is the hope of the world. And so I pray this morning that as we look to this text, that our hearts and minds would be captivated once again by Jesus, the hope of Christmas and the hope of the world. We're going to see three things today in this text that point us to this idea that Jesus is the hope of the world. And the first one is is found in verses 1 through 3, the infinite Christ, the infinite Christ. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so as John starts his gospel, he doesn't give us a a lineage or a genealogy. He doesn't even really point us to uh, the idea of John the Baptist coming on the scene as the other gospels do. But he starts with these very familiar words, in the beginning. Now, if you've been around the Word of God for any length of time, you'll understand that that is not the first time that this phrase is used. And John would have written his gospel with this truth in his mind. And if we backed up all the way to the beginning of the Bible, we would see that the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the first verse of the Bible starts in the very same way, that in the beginning, something significant happened, something amazing happened, something incredible happened, and it needs to catch our attention. And so John begins his gospel with this phrase, in the beginning. John was seeking to draw his readers into this idea that the one he was writing about was not an ordinary man or a common teacher. He was not a simple miracle worker, but he was the eternal Son of God. And so in the beginning is not a reference to when Jesus was created, for we know that he never was. Nor is it a reference to the incarnation, when Jesus came as a human. But it's rewinding back to the beginning of time, when all that exists wasn't, and the only thing or person that did exist is the one who created everything. And so John gives us these details because he wants us to know who it is that actually came for us. You see, many in the world live, have no problem with this idea that a man lived whose name was Jesus. What they have a problem with is that this Jesus is actually God who came to save humanity. And so John writes to refute that argument that he knew would come, that Jesus was not the son of Mary and Joseph biologically, especially from Joseph's part, but that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world who was sent from God in a miraculous way. 
And so as John again begins, he says, in the beginning. And these first three verses are theologically rich. They're they're deep. They're things that we need to ponder as Mary pondered all the events that took place in her day. And when we rightly ponder them, they will draw us into the point where we are ready to worship the one who came to die in our place. And so John says, in the beginning was the word. And you say, well, this isn't about Jesus at all. It's about the word, whatever that means, whatever that is. And John, as he wrote his gospel, as he says, in the beginning was the word, he wrote in a way that both the Greeks and the Jewish people would be drawn into this story because both of those groups would understand, in some sense, the significance of this word, logos. To the Jews, they would understand that for years past, The word of the Lord came to them through the prophets. The declarations of God were constantly coming forth, telling them what God wanted them to know, making them aware of what God was going to do. And so when he says the word, the Jews would have been listening. They would have been on the edge of their seats, ready to receive, because how long had it been since they had heard from God? Many years. And so when Jesus says, or I'm sorry, when John says, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Jews' ears would have been perked up and they would have been listening to what John had to say. But the Greeks were also familiar with this idea of logos. Now, they weren't familiar in the way that that the Jews were, but the Greeks would use this term logos or word to try to encapsulate what they could not understand. When we speak, we order words in a specific place so that we can get across a specific idea. And as they thought of the things that they could not understand, they would use this word logos or word to try to comprehend what was. And so as they thought about the expanse of the universe or the order of things in life, they would use that word logos as a way of recognizing that there was something big here that needed to pay attention to. And so both groups, whether they were waiting for the coming of Christ or whether they were ignorant to the coming of Christ, were familiar with this term logos as being something that we need to pay attention to. And so as John says, in the beginning was the word. It would have caught the attention of both groups and they would have been listening. And John goes on to declare something significant that probably people in both groups were not ready to receive. In fact, John tells us they weren't ready to receive it. That when Jesus came onto the scene, his own didn't even receive him. That when the plain message of the gospel was preached, that there were many who readily and excitedly rejected that truth. But John nonetheless seeks to describe to us the infinite Christ, the one who was in existence from eternity past, the one who was with God, but also the one who was God, the one who created all things, the one who brought everything into existence, the one who through himself holds all things together. This is the one that John is seeking to describe, and this is the one that we celebrate on Christmas and every Sunday throughout the year, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Friend, does Jesus excite you today? The idea that God would become a man? The idea that the eternal one who never was created, the the one who has always been, that he would come into this world and take my place and your place upon a cross? So it's no insignificant thing that John starts his gospel out in the way that he does because he's pointing to Christ, and anything ever pointing to Christ is not an insignificant thing. And so when John says, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's pointing to the infinite Christ who has always been. But in John's Gospel, He comes as He's never been before, wrapped in flesh, and offering Himself as a sacrifice for sinners. As we think through verses 1 through 3, I wonder... Today, have you met this infinite Christ? Do you have a relationship with this one who wrapped himself in flesh and became as we are so that he could die the death that we deserved? You see, as I said earlier, Jesus was not just a historical figure. Friend, if Jesus was just a historical figure, then we would still be left hopeless in our sins. But Jesus was God who came in our place. And John wants his readers to understand that, that there's something to pay attention to. There's something significant that came on the scene. There's something that deserves our attention. And as he used that word logos, he was pointing this people to this reality that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to die in our place. And so the infinite Christ is what John begins with. And then we're going to jump down to the end of this passage in verse number 14 and see the incarnate Christ, the infinite Christ and the incarnate Christ. In verse 14, a verse that many of us are very familiar with, one that probably many of us have have memorized. We we quote it throughout our our days, especially around this time of year. We think through what this means. And John wraps up this idea of Christ coming onto the scene before he gets into John's story in full detail. And he says these words again in verse 14. And the word, remember, the logos, the one who, who was the exclamation or the declaration or the proclamation of God, or for the Greeks, the one that they couldn't wrap their minds around, but they knew it was something to be paid attention to. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. This wasn't somebody that John had never come in contact with. This is one that John spent his days with for three years, listening to, learning from. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the infinite Christ became the incarnate Christ. John doesn't tell us about Jesus being God, uh, but the end of this section tells us that this word, uh, I'm sorry, John begins by telling us that Jesus was God, that the word was with God. In the end of this section, he makes this declaration that the word, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we've already labored this idea, this is no small point to pay attention to, but this is huge. This is something that should catch your attention. Have you been driving recently down the road and uh, off to the side of the road you see a car accident and what happens, uh, especially in Vermont where nothing goes on, what happens when a car accident takes place on the side of the road in Vermont? Everybody turns their head and when they turn their head something happens with their foot and it pushes down on the brake pedal which often causes more accidents to happen. It causes uh, traffic to back up. The Boswells were coming up here Wednesday night, and they sat in traffic for 20 minutes. And when they got to the point where all the traffic was bottlenecked, all there was was a police car and a car beside the road. It's like, there's more to life to pay attention to than that, folks, right? But that's what happens. We see something interesting, and it catches our attention, and it causes us to stop. It causes us to think. And as John labors this idea of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, 
When he says that we beheld his glory, the glory of the Father, of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, what is he saying? He says you need to stop and pay attention to this idea because it's no insignificant thing that God would become a man and dwell among us. This idea of dwelling among us does not mean that Jesus came on the scene at a ripe age of 33, ready to die. But it means that he came in the way that we come. That he was born through the natural process, as we saw last week. And as Mary experienced the pains of birth and the trial of birth and those Braxton Hicks contractions, wondering if this was the fullness of time. Nope, not yet. Wondering if this was the fullness of time. Nope, got to wait a little longer. And then, all of a sudden, as they found themselves in Bethlehem, as they made their way there to, to take part in the census that was being held, they find themselves in a place that they didn't probably want to be. And yet that's where God decided that the fullness of time had come and His Son, Jesus Christ, would come into the world. And so while we often look at John 1 as not being a part of the Christmas story, friend, we must understand that John 1 is very much a part of the Christmas story. That as John relays his gospel message, though he does it in a different way, he does it in a way that deserves our attention. And he says these words, that the Word, the one who was with God, the one who was God, came into this life to be like we are, yet without sin, so that he could die in our place. And so John says the Word became flesh. Other writers in the New Testament say it in different ways, and even in the Old Testament. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Luke says it this way in Luke 2, 6 through 7. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Moses says it this way all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 3 and verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. And though all of these writers of the Bible explain the idea of Christ coming in a different way, we see that they also all agree that Jesus did come. And that he came and wrapped himself in flesh and became a man. And so John wants us to understand that this isn't just a myth. But we actually beheld him, we saw him, we touched him, we handled him. This was the gift of grace that God had given, the gift that God had promised through the ages that one would come on the scene to right all wrongs, and his name is Jesus, and he did come, and he did live, and he did die, and he did rise again, and he still lives today, and ever intercedes for us as the children of God. This is the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says this word that came was full of grace and he was full of truth. Grace and truth. Doesn't our world lack grace sometimes? Don't don't we lack grace sometimes? But Jesus came in grace. He is, in fact, the gift of grace, the greatest gift that had ever been given. And when we deserved death and hell and damnation, 
God gave us His Son as the gift that if we believe on Him, we can have eternal life. You say, well, this all sounds a little bit impossible. Maybe to you today, it even sounds a little bit far-fetched that God would come as a man. That's not what deities do. It's not what somebody of high-ranking power would do. And how did He even do it? As I thought through that question myself this week, I was reminded what the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. So we may not understand all of the details surrounding the incarnation of, of God actually be able, being able to become a human and taking on human form to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserve. But let us understand this truth that with God, nothing is impossible. In an even greater way, Maybe as you think of yourself today, you think, well, I'm a pretty rotten person. I've done some pretty horrible things. I don't think I could ever be redeemed. But can I remind you again of the words of the angel to Mary that with God, nothing shall be impossible. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The one who was outside of time entered into time. The one who created all in some sense became like his creation. The one who was when nothing else was became a man and dwelt among us. And you see, John reveals that there never was a time when Jesus was not. He was eternally with the Father in the glories of heaven and in the expanse of time. But in John's gospel and in all the gospels, we see that Jesus came as he had never been before, wrapped in flesh, subject to the laws that he put in place, held captive in some regards by the limitations imposed upon himself. And yet he did it perfectly. And so there's a lot that goes into this idea of God becoming man, and it truly deserves our pondering. And I pray that as we think about the infinite Christ, and as we think about the incarnate Christ, that we would spend maybe the next week just dwelling on those things and rejoicing in our final point this morning, which is the invitation of Christ. You see, if Christ was God and he became a man and that was the end of the story, understand, friends, we would have no reason to celebrate here today. If God became a man and lived a perfect life and then simply at the age of 33 went back to the Father in heaven and was worshipped by the angels once more, yet he never died in our place, then we, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, would be of all men most miserable. Why? Because there was no hope for us in this world. But Jesus, who was God, did come and he did die and he offers to this world the invitation to come and believe in his name. You know, this time of year, we often see that word believe uh, maybe plastered throughout the town, or, or maybe you see yard decorations with that idea on them. And, and oftentimes, the idea of belief is played up into this idea that you have to believe in a certain man in a red suit who comes down your chimney in the middle of the night. But understand, church, there is someone of much greater power to believe in, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And the invitation that we see in John 1 is an invitation to come and believe on His name. And belief is not just a reception of knowledge or a passed down, uh, information that's passed down from one person to the next person. But true belief has the power to change your life radically 
from the inside out. We could share all sorts of scenarios that if you believe something is true, it has the power to change you. But the greatest scenario that has the greatest power to bring the most significant change is belief that Jesus was God and that he died in your place and that he rose again the third day. For if we reject other truths, we still have hope. But if we reject the truth of Jesus, then we are indeed hopeless. And so in verses 1 and 2, again, we see that John establishes this idea that Jesus was God. And in verse number 14, we see that John establishes this idea that that God or Jesus became a man and that he dwelt among us and he experienced the things that we go through in life. And then in verses 4 through 13, sandwiched between these two great theological truths is this idea of why Jesus did what he did. I always love to know the reason why. And I think I've passed that down to my kids because that's the most uh, uh, regular question that we receive as parents, right? Why? Go clean your room. Why? Buckle up. Why? Eat all of your dinner. Why? Do what I say. Why? Because I said so, right? <laughs> Why? That, that's the question that, that kids through the ages have asked. And if we're honest, that's the question that we still ask today. Something happens to you in life and you want to know the why. You face a deep battle with a a grave sickness and you want to know why. Somebody treats you poorly and you want to know why. Something happens in your life that, that is not able to be comprehended by you as to why this thing would take place. And and what do you find yourself asking? Why? And so as we approach the Christmas story again today, I, I think it's only valid that we ask the why. Why did God, the eternal God who created all things, why did he become a man and dwell among us? What's the why behind Jesus doing what he did? The why is found in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The why behind Jesus doing what he did is that he loved us. He loved us eternally, and he understood, God understood, that him stepping into our world was the only thing that had the ability to give hope. We've talked about this this year already, but if we think through the Old Testament sacrifices, we understand that those were pointing to the time when Christ would come. And if all the Old Testament figures ever did was have these sacrifices that they clung to, in some sense, they would still be hopeless because Jesus needed to come and be the fulfillment of those sacrifices as he gave himself completely on the cross for our sins. And so as we think through this idea of why Jesus came, we must understand that John gives us the reason here in verses 4 through 13. In verse 4, he says this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, this has a couple different meanings. We understand that in him, according to Colossians, Jesus holds all things together. And so if Jesus ever ceases to be, then guess what? Life ceases to be. But in a spiritual sense as well, who is it that holds us in the hand of the Father? It's the eternal God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in him was life, yes, in the biological standpoint that that we are living, breathing beings, but even more so in a spiritual standpoint. And that's actually the word in the Greek that's used here is this idea of the spiritual life that Jesus had and offered us. And so in him was life, and this life was the light of men. 
In verse number 5, it says, And the light shineth into the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John says, When Jesus came on the scene, people did not understand what was going on. They didn't understand the significance of his birth. They didn't understand the offer that he would make. And through his life, he was constantly rejected. Through his life, he was constantly berated as being a liar, as a false teacher or a false prophet, one who was leading people astray. And though the light shone into the world, and though the darkness comprehended it not, it does not change the truth of who Jesus is. If you reject the idea that the stoplight you ran through was red, guess what? doesn't really matter. You're still going to get a ticket. Why? Because the stoplight was red. And if you reject this idea that Jesus truly was the Savior of the world, guess what? In the end, your opinion does not matter because Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he would do. In verse 6, we see that John makes a reference to John the Baptist, the one who was the forerunner of Christ, the one that we saw in the Gospel of Mark who pointed others to Jesus continually and constantly as he downplayed himself and magnified the Savior. In verses 7 and 8, John reveals that John the Baptist came as a witness uh, to the light to bear witness of his name. And the end of verse 7 gives the why, that all men through him might believe. And so John wasn't the one that people were to pay attention to. John wasn't drawing attention to himself, even though by his nature, people would have been attracted to him. But John had come to point people to the one who they were to believe in. John says of John the Baptist that he was not the light in verse 8, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. In verse 9, he says, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, a reference to his deity once again, and the world knew him not. He goes on to say he came into his own, and his own received him not. And it points again to this idea of the rejection of the Savior. And where can we see this played out in a significant way? Go and read Isaiah 53. And as that prophecy was given about the person of Christ, we see that, that those who he came for rejected him and denied him. And we understand, friends, that this was all a part of God's plan. But it still was the reality that Jesus lived. And then, as we get into verse number 12, we see the invitation explained. That as he came into the world and the world rejected him, they didn't receive him. John shares a significant truth. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And as John goes on through this passage, he reminds us that Christ came for a reason, and the reason was that the world would believe on him. And as I said earlier, there are many in the world who have no problem believing that a man named Jesus lived, but they have to believe a little further. And the belief has to be in this idea that Jesus was a man who came to live, but he was God in the flesh who lived perfectly and died in our place. And so many in the world, as I've said, believe in a guy named Jesus. Many in the world believe in this concept of heaven. Many believe that there is a supernatural power labeled as God. But unless we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, then that belief has no effect in our lives. 
And so again, it's not just having a knowledge, but it's believing that the only one who can save you from your sins is the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who, who wrapped himself in flesh and came into this world. And this is the invitation that he gives. We see this in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe in me, come to me, and you will find life. Last week, we saw in the message that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We must believe in that truth. In John 10.10, we understand this truth, that the thief came to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly. And so I would ask you today, do you believe in this Jesus? Not just in a historical figure who lived many, many years ago, but do you believe in Jesus as John describes him for us, the Savior of the world? I was reminded this week of a story of a pastor um, that I think some of you would be familiar with. He's a young guy, probably my age. I still classify myself as young. That's okay, right? Um, And he and his wife entered into ministry And as he started a church down in the Boston area, as he began to preach the gospel week in and week out, his wife realized that though she was married to a pastor, and though she had been to Bible college, and though she had grown up in church, she wasn't saved. And she came to her husband after church one Sunday morning and said, Honey, I've believed but I've never believed. And on that Sunday morning after church, this pastor's wife trusted Christ as her Savior. And you know what she is today? A child of God. And so I would ask you today, maybe you've been in church your whole life. You've gone through the motions. You've you've checked all the boxes. You're here the week before Christmas, and you're even planning on coming next week, Christmas Day. Understand that none of those things will save you. None of them. There's people in this room today that have had a similar story, that they went through their whole life becoming an adult, saying they were saved, but never truly believing. John says, this is why I've written these things. So that you can believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I would ask you today, have you accepted this invitation of Jesus to believe in his name. Not just that he was a historical figure who lived, but that he truly was God in the flesh who came and dwelt among us. The invitation of Christ again is this, come to me and I will give you rest. Lay down your striving, lay down your your trying, lay down your perceived knowledge or your Christian activity. Lay down all those things and simply come to me. For in simply coming to me, that is when you find true life. You say, I would be too embarrassed to do that. Friend, if you're too embarrassed to come to Jesus, you may not look at it this way, but in reality, what you're doing is rejecting Jesus. You're saying, my pride is more valuable to me than believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And so I would ask you again today, would you come to Jesus? You say, is is this really what it's all about? Friend, from uh, from Genesis to Revelation, this is what it's all about. A story of redemption. As God was writing through the process of time, 
to let the world know that he loved them deeply. And his greatest display of love was in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world. I've heard it so often described as God was thinking through the process of salvation and he had to convince Jesus to come. Friend, God did not convince Jesus to come. There was no convincing. Others have said that this is a picture of child abuse, that God would send his world into this day. There, there was no child abuse. There was a loving father who dwelt in perfect unity that knew that this was the only thing that could take away the sins of the world. And in offering himself, he's offering to us an invitation to come to him. Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so again, if you're here today and you're striving and you're working and you're thinking that you've done enough, you could never do enough. But one came who did do enough, and his name is Jesus. And he is the hope of Christmas. As we began this morning, I said that we can strip everything peripheral away from Christmas And if all we're left with is Christ, then we still have hope, for that is who he is. Jesus is not one of many. He is the one and only who who offers us to come to him alone by faith and believe that he is the savior of the world. And this is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And I would ask you again today, have you received this gift? Have you received the gift of Jesus? Again, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word belief or believeth in the King James is a loaded word. It takes the knowledge that God has made clear of himself And it applies that knowledge, but also at the same time, it's a repentance of your sins. Saying that my only hope in this life and in the next is Jesus alone. And as we look to John 3.16, we see that this verse unpacks a mystery. It clearly outlines for us what we do. And we know that what we do is only a gift from God that we're even even able to turn to Him. But He calls us to come and believe in His name, and in doing so, we will find life. So the final question I ask again is, do you believe? The last three weeks, we've ended with a few words from a Christmas carol, and I've already used a couple verses from this one, but I want to share verse number two from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because it ties in so well to John chapter one, and it says this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Pleased as men, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so have you received the gift of Jesus, the gift of Emmanuel, of God with us. 
Rejecting this gift will lead you to no hope in this life and no hope in the life to come. But receiving this gift leads to hope in this life and in the life to come. And so I ask you again, do you believe? Yesterday morning, Brianna and I and the kids went to a funeral at my brother's church down in Barrie. The funeral was for this lady who passed away. She was in her mid-70s, got saved at a young age. And every testimony that people gave about her life was that her belief changed everything about her. Everything. So yesterday as we sat at a funeral, and though there were tears that were shed, understand those tears that were shed were tears of sadness for the people in the room, not for the one who had passed away. Why? Because she believed. And her, her last breath on this earth was her first breath in eternity. I wonder, do you believe? And her eternity wasn't separated from God. Her eternity is with God forever. Do you believe? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truths of your word that we can look to. And God, you have so clearly outlined for us this idea of salvation, that it's not what we can do. In fact, everything that's a part of salvation, God, is something that you do. And this morning, if there's any here who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, God, we pray that your spirit would draw them to yourself that you would unveil their eyes, that you would open their hearts to receive the glorious message of the gospel that Jesus did come, that he did die, and that he did rise again, securing their eternal salvation if, if they will look to him. God, we praise you that you have given us a Christmas story, that you haven't left us simply to ourselves to figure things out But God, you have given us a way to find the truth that you have given us a way to receive eternal life. God, work in our hearts today. And for those of us who who have believed, God, I pray that our belief would be seen in the way that we live, not just in this season, but in every season, that we firmly believe these hard-to-understand truths, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh God, I pray today that you would do great things because you are a great God who deserves the glory and praise that we can give you. Thank you again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would stay seated just for a second. As we wrap up today, we're going to sing a song, and the song that we're going to sing is, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. And this song that, that we have sung last year and into this year is a song that really outlines each of our lives. Because each of us were hopeless. Each of us were lost and undone. Many in the room today have had a moment where they realized their unfaithfulness. They realized their sin, and that was, it was against a holy and just God. And they have come believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Friend, if you've never believed that today, I'm going to make my way to the back. And as this song is sung, if the Spirit of God is working in your heart, I would ask you to come and we'll take the word of God and we'll show you through John's gospel how you can be saved because these things were written that we might believe and that in believing we would have life through his name. 
Would you stand as we sing, as Dave comes? If you